I like this note here. Uh, huge takeaways. Uh, first one is just so good. So good. It's just all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to pot. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do it. Right. That's what I was cold opening. I, I was doing. Oh, that it. was a cold open to the middle of the document. I was well. That's the best way is to jump into a subject. It's like a preview of what's to come. It's kind of like when the trailer shows like a fight scene that's in the middle. Is you know we're like. Especially because it's a positive note that you had, which was, quote, so good. It's so good. This is everything every Root fan has been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, this is like... Even if they didn't know it. For real. This is like the prequel to a Root game, but we're going we're gonna to talk about like the prequel as its own whole like thing. I'm super excited. Wait, this is the Hobbit of Root? What do you mean? Yeah, because setup <laughs> is its own strategic environment. Just like the Hobbit. Just like Just the like Hobbit. <laughs> is there a thing in art of like a balance patch being added in that makes something that was already great even greater? Can we think of yeah, something? Yeah, the um, holographic components of the Mona Lisa, I thought, really improved. <laughs> uh, Star Wars uh, Special Edition, where we got all those background ships. Yeah, I feel like there's many examples of things getting worse as the creator continues to tinker yeah. with it, but it seldom is like this thing where it's like, and now it's even more complete than it was <laughs> with just a small deck of advanced setup cards. Yeah, it's. I guess, I mean, besides video games getting patched, I guess right. like this is the closest thing we got, which is this is the board game getting patched. Yeah. I think there's occasionally like re remastered albums that come out that i feel like oh, in yeah. a way that's sort of a patch mm -hmm. that's a great one kyle this is like you guys remember those old beatles tracks that were in stereo but it was like they were just starting to record things in stereo so you'd get like all the vocals on one side and they thought yeah. that was cool right <laughs> this is like that 2009 beatles remastered or is it 2010 i don't remember whatever they remastered all the beatles songs this is this is that Oh yeah, that's better. Yeah, it, than like the it makes it just more cohesive and just takes all the best parts of setup and just mushes them together and makes it more cool. Yeah. Well, we should tell people what we're talking about, which is advanced setup, the subject of today's episode. And at advanced setup will come with the Marauders expansion, but it's actually kind of itself already out in the public now uh, because there are PDFs of it on the internet that you have access to but there will be like official cards that come with the marauder expansion as well this yeah. advanced this advanced setup uh correct me if i'm wrong uh changes the basic setup of the game in a way that kind of more balances the factions and their interactions i think is the the takeaway yeah absolutely yeah this is probably the easiest thing from the upcoming expansion to just print and play yeah, you don't need to like be able to, you know, cobble together meeples or anything like that or print off faction boards and high res. There are like 10 cards that you can just print off, sleeve them, whatever. And now you have essentially a balance patch for root. You'll be able to replace the setup instructions from uh, the back of the faction boards as well, which just gives us a little bit of a different uh, starting game scenario, which hopefully uh, brings more balance to the faction interaction. While we're kind of talking about this from a 10,000 foot view, I, I do want to mention this is not the first balance patch that Root has received. Famously, after the release of the base game, there were a few kind of updates made to 
uh, the Woodland Alliance, and to the Lizard Cult. But those are a little less elegant than just a, a you know a sheet of cards. That actually required that you put like a sticker over the rules <laughs> section on a player board. And uh, yeah, this I feel like this was very controversial in the fan community. You guys showed me this at, I think it was Sam's bachelor party. I didn't know about this because I had a first edition printing of Root. And you guys told me and showed me the sticker. I was like, oh, I... I have a incomplete set now. <laughs> well, they did release like updated boards and you can right. buy those. And I, I thought about it and I'm like, actually, I think my stickered boards are like cooler. <laughs> like I was around when you had to sticker the boards, you know? Um, yeah. I really get under the hood and apply that sticker. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Before we get too deep into ad set, we, of course, need to start the episode with some Root News. Okay, so we have a huge news bomb here. Now, the problem is the people that have listened to the previous two episodes already knew this news. No, I... <laughs> okay, we're, we're a little late releasing these things, but the big news is... The winter tournament is happening. Ooh, yes. Yes, I've waited... Four seasons for this. (laughs) (laughs) The winter tournament, if you guys don't know, is the fan-run tournament, specifically Garrick Samples, a person we reference often on this podcast, a great pillar of the community, uh, is organizing the winter tournament. Uh, Signups are are still open as of the recording of this podcast. Probably not by the time you're hearing this. I don't know. It is uh, capped at 128 participants, unless... It shoots exponentially beyond that, and we can go out another like oh, exponent. another one hundred and twenty-eight, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, basically, it's it's like a huge branching thing. Uh, Sam, you've run into this. Organizing a tournament logistically has its own challenges, but organizing a tournament just in terms of like uh, how to kind of equitably distribute slots and have players advance or be knocked out in a four-player game as crazy as Root. It's challenging. It's very challenging. Garrick's taking on a lot, and uh, he's made some uh, alterations to the rules as written of Root to make it go a little smoother in the tournament. And I do want to applaud him for making some bold moves that I think are going to really improve the watchability and the variability of these games. Yes. Yeah. Hats off. Um, In Garrick's own words, this is a bit of an experiment just to see how these kind of minor rebalancing tweaks affect the gameplay and affect the quality of the the tournament as a whole and kind of the outcomes to see what kind of data we can generate. Um, we're te- they're like testing this rule set. Um, so not set in stone, but, you know, trying to aim for something that's a little like just not as many coalition victories. Yeah, yeah. I, Space Cats Peace Turtles uh, has talked about this before in terms of organizing these tournaments. It's like, there are elements of Root that don't fit a tournament setting, ideally. Coalition kind of being the biggest one. And so it's necessary to alter the rules in some capacity. And for any of you purists out there that are a little worried that, oh, we're not really getting the real experience of Root, well, a lot of games, both professionally like in sports and also uh, in esports too with video games, alter the rule set for tournament settings. Right. I mean, a lot of people play, don't play amateur football or college football the way professional national football is played. But also like with uh, esports and video games, certain like uh, fact, certain like 
combinations of characters are uh, banned in certain formats and such. So this is the same way. Uh, we won't go into all the details of it, but I will have a link to the description of the sign-up information as well as the rules modification in the link to the pod. Yeah, I do want to cover some general information about the tournament that uh, these games are played on Tabletop Simulator. So if you fancy competing against the best, you're going to have to get used to Tabletop Simulator. It is a bear to wrestle. It's funny. I actually, I want to push back on this because I used to think it was a bear to wrestle too. But honestly, I think it's more intimidating looking than it really is in practice. I think if you are at least somewhat familiar with using WASD on a keyboard to move around and you know how to use what's called a mouse, you're going to be okay. It does take a little bit of practice. There are a lot of little hotkeys and stuff, but the information's all there. It just takes a little bit of familiarizing yourself. Uh, with the mechanics of it. Additionally, there are a grip of tutorials out there on YouTube, so you can teach yourself this. Uh, don't don't be too intimidated by it. Yeah, learn a couple hotkeys. There are a few that are like useful for root, like using the right click is pretty helpful sometimes. Also, I just had this idea that if uh, if you could get a mouse for your computer that was shaped like a Woodland Alliance <laughs> meeple, like lying down, that'd be super cute. Be so cute. So cute. Can you just a picture of bread with a cord on it? And <laughs> this is the least ergonomic mouse I've ever used, and I love it. <laughs> All the tournament games are going to be streamed as well on Garrick Samples Games' Twitch channel, which if you're not following out already, some great uh, root content with all these rules we're talking about are being posted. So if you're trying to study up, maybe don't have the time to play the games, but you have time to watch, check out Garrick's Twitch that is going to be big. And then the big final thing I want to say about general information is that there is some prize money, folks. Oh, cash prizes, baby. $250 <laughs> to the winner of the tournament and $100 for each of the finalists. Kyle, are you ready to earn your physical copy of Root? This is the only avenue where I will actually spend money for a copy of Root. Is if I, I will spend tournament winnings. From Root on Root. <laughs> I believe it's money at the Leader Games yeah. like online store. So it's okay, basically all I you can You did say cash prizes, which is exactly wrong. It's a gift card to the Leader Games store, which means Root-based winnings. Hey, that's all. That's the only place I spend money anyway. <laughs> yes, that's true. My landlord is pissed. Also, Garrick's tournament is going to be using advanced setup. So this podcast is uh, very timely in that way. Oh. Um also, there is a nerf to the Vagabond. We just mentioned that coalitions are not happening, but also the Vagabond's infamy is more like how the Despot uh, earns extra points. So there's a little bit of a nerf there. Um, That's right. Instead of getting one point for every warrior killed or and just a bonus point for every piece of cardboard, now it's like if you remove an enemy piece, you just immediately score one bonus point, and then... That's it. That's kind of the end of it. You score a bonus point plus whatever other points you may have gotten from cardboard or whatever. But it just doesn't stack as hard as the uh, kind of rules as written for Vagabond. And this is hopefully just to kind of like level the playing field slightly. Just take a bit of the edge off the Vagabond. <laughs> I'm very interested to see the results of this. If this brings the Vagabond in more line with the other factions, if it's not enough or if it's too much. Predictions? I'm I think it's going to be tough for the Vagabond to win. Tougher because of this or just, I mean, what do you mean? Like, does, is this rule making it harder for the Vagabond? 
I mean, yes, obviously, obviously we know that's true, but I mean, to what extent? Right. I think that between this and the things that advanced setup does to the Vagabond, which we'll get into later in the episode, I think that it's going to do enough to make sure that Vagabond doesn't run away with it. I predict we'll still see a Vagabond win. I think we'll see all the factions win. Ooh. I think there's going to be so many games in advanced well, yeah. setup has brought enough parity that I think we're going to see all the factions win in this tournament. Here's what I'm going to say. Because it's the first tournament with Marauders content, get ready to see the meta like implode, reform, explode, <laughs> change shape, become a face, melt into something weird, and then reform as something else later. Like The meta is going to be very amorphous for a while. And this change to the Vagabond, here's my, here's my real prediction. And maybe this is kind of giving away my own kind of strategic thoughts that I should maybe keep to myself, but... Whatever, you're listening to this pod. I want to share with you my real thoughts. I think that early in the tournament, the Vagabond will struggle mightily because people will still be in the habit mm-hmm. of bopping them a little, like, really often, which is a, still a good reflex to have. But I think the full impact of Despot Infamy won't be apparent in those early, early games. So people will over-police the Vagabond. And then they'll kind of, like, let their foot off the gas and that's when the Vagabond's going to, like, retake that that area of the meta. And we'll probably see, like, a little bit of a rebound. And then it'll sort of level off once we kind of establish, like, exactly how much of a threat they are. Uh, but, yeah, we'll also get into ad set later and how that changes things. But that's my prediction. It's going to be a little too much and then not enough and then just right. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds good to me. Does anybody care about my prediction? Or Yeah, yeah Jake, Jake, what's your prediction? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I'm also on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the Vagabond will immediately be considered not as much of a threat because of this rule change. I think they'll be underestimated. I don't think this will necessarily mean they'll win, but I think they'll be close all the time. And there's just so much other stuff going on. I'm also interested in the meta of tournament level play in the issue of everybody knowing it's a tournament because this is double elimination so you actually can lose twice you're going to play two games and so there is kind of a i think there'll be some relationships formed in in, at the table and people will be like you know what i'm gonna lose this game but i'm gonna make sure that person doesn't win this game (laughs) that makes me think of uh the television show survivor where players who are eliminated form the jury which then decides who wins the million dollars at the end of the game (laughs) Um, and in a game as kind of socially mm-hmm. playable as Root, <laughs> I do think that if you like really screw somebody over in your first game and still don't win, yeah. and then you end up in a game with them again, oh, watch out. Space. Watch out. <laughs> You're starting the game at a deficit. That I, It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Um, Sam, how much do you think that's going to play a role in in the the double elimination i mean how much do you think that's going to play a role in the meta i don't know you know i think it's like if there's this many participants you know the the odds of you actually being in a game with someone you were in a game with before is probably pretty low but i think it's it's interesting because like the winners will continue to play games right so i feel like it might be more common for the winners to i think it will depend on how many people there are but I do want to applaud Garrick for doing double elimination because Root's a crazy game where a lot of things can happen, and it's important to at least get another shot. 
that's so many games he's gonna have to run double elimination that's oh my crazy gosh. i can't believe what's about to happen <laughs> it's going to be the ultimate root tournament for sure i am so excited we should definitely keep talking more about this in future episodes as it gets closer and as we record where it's nearing um but we should get to ad set because yep. there's a lot to talk about yes okay so what is ad set we keep saying this cute word ad set it means advanced setup Okay, and that kind of breaks down into two real things, which is the advanced setup draft, which is a new way of starting the game and people choosing their factions and choosing a map and kind of setting up the game in like kind of like a regulated way rather than just everybody choosing what they want and us kind of just throwing some stuff on the table. And then there's the faction advanced setup cards, which instead of using the back of the faction board and setting up in that like cats, birds, you know, alphabetical order, you uh, instead use these setup cards and your setup order is dependent on the turn order of the game. It's It has an inverse relationship. So the first person to set up will take the uh, fourth turn. Yes. Um, I've been brainstorming like what to call the original setup. Mm-hmm. Um, because something like classic setup makes a lot of sense, right? That's sort right. of like the, the setup that came with the original version of the game. But I think something more accurate would be like chronological setup. Because turn order d- never mattered for right. the kind of classic setup. It was always like what order were the factions like released in chronologically, kind of, <laughs> yeah. is what the setup pr- comprised. And uh, yeah, so chronological setup versus advanced setup. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Also because chronological has like an old timey feel. <laughs> it has a timey feel. Ooh, nice. <laughs> That's true. So advanced setup is, I'd say, a little more flexible uh, than than the original way things were done. And has a lot more to do with, uh, you, you get to kind of react a little more to the person who's um, going to be next to you in the turn order. So just not that we've ever really gone over it in this ep- in the podcast or that anybody needs exact setup rules from chronological version. But originally uh, in the original version, it was you just assign factions based on whatever you want. People just pick them, right? And so now with this draft, uh, we're actually a little bit more restricted, right? Which is that a number of factions come out and then players will pick them based on their turn order. Yes. The thing is, is that in order to get to choosing factions, which definitely seems like that's like the major piece of setup is like choosing a faction and then putting it on the board. Even to get to that step, that's like, what do you think? That was like step five of advanced setup. <laughs> yeah, it's and like I'm I've condensed some of the the steps here. Okay, <laughs> let's plow through but, it then. Let's like let's go okay. through it so we can just get it out there and then we can talk more about it. All right. So currently. I am not aware of a way of choosing a map and deck other than the group coming to a consensus or it being random. Now, I think you throw them all in a river and whichever floats is the one you choose, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Jake, I've I've told you multiple times, this isn't witch times. I've lost so many copies of Root. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Kyle. I I should have given you one of them. Jake, none of them float. Yeah, that's why we never get to play. I'm always like, well, (laughs) guess we're no map again today, guys. So... I think tournaments will uh, kind of solve this issue of who gets to choose the map. Is it the last person? Is it the first player? But right now, it's kind of decided randomly, all right, which map and deck you're going to use. Well, to be fair, the deck is always EMP. In Garrick's tournament, the 
thing is always ENP. Also, but whenever we setup, play together or anybody plays, it's always <laughs> ENP. Well, I will say we always play ENP on TTS, which is just a bunch of letters I just said. <laughs> um, but we always play the Exiles and Partisans deck on Tabletop Simulator because the root digital only has the base deck right and we've seen favor of the foxes enough in our life yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, right 100 percent. right uh so the second step after we've randomly chosen the map and deck is to seat players so we just all sit around the table and we choose a first player okay randomly <laughs> or or whoever has the most money um that's just my variant okay <laughs> whoever has the most money on them at the time Yes. Oh, okay. Whoever is willing to pay the other players the most amount of money starts to <laughs> That's my very player who has most recently eaten a root. <laughs> or just roll a die. <laughs> yeah. We we tend to roll a die. Yeah. Uh so you then you draw five cards. What, Sam? Yes, listener. You draw five cards. Now in standard setup, which I just looked up in the in the law, it's called standard setup. Sorry, Kyle. Uh that's probably better (laughs) (laughs) um you got three random cards and you just had to deal with it and this was a particular problem for a couple factions that just got three random cards and also didn't get to choose where they started um that could have that kind of puts them a turn or two behind sometimes cough cough lizards but now we get to draw five cards now you won't spoiler alert for step six or seven or nine or whatever it is but You won't keep all those five cards. You'll still start the game with three, but at the beginning of setup, even before you've got your factions, you draw five cards and you kind of have those as options. So you will keep three, but you don't choose those three now because crucially, a lot of other setup things are going to occur, which might inform your choice later on is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. It's essentially the last thing you do is discard two cards. Right. Discard. You actually shuffle them back. That's really smart design because that that presents you with options but uh holds off on forcing you to make them until you can react right yeah yeah i just feel like it's it's a little bit kind because then you don't hit analysis paralysis like before the game has even started (laughs) so hard you know what i mean absolutely (laughs) like it's a bit kind because then you you get to have that moment that like final breath before the game starts where you're just looking at your kind of drafted hand and thinking like okay given what i know about what's on the board right now like what do i really need to keep you know what there's probably one card that you're like i'm definitely getting rid of this and then you get to have like a choice for the other i just think it's like really smart gives everyone a second to kind of collect their thoughts and like settle on a a path forward for the early turns and then we're just we're in we're off the ledge yeah and we'll get into a little bit later how this might affect the early game the fact that there is like a draft of hands, but I'm going to keep us plowing through what advanced draft is. The next part is setting up hirelings, which at the current moment, we don't have enough experience with hirelings to kind of discuss what this will bring to the table. Needless to say, hirelings are kind of like minor versions of factions that kind of help fill out the board and give you special abilities uh, when you control them. And we'll have a whole episode or two or a whole series on hirelings eventually. But I uh, just want to say in, a, in the draft, you actually do the hireling part first before you choose factions. And you can't, at least the rules as we know them now, you can't have like Forest Patrol, which is like the cat hirelings, with the cats proper. Yeah, it's like an echo of a faction. A little so bit. one of those that's not in the game will be the hirelings. 
Right, right. So the hirelings could eliminate possible options from the pool of factions we're going to choose. Because their presence dictates or would limit what would be pulled in the next step where we pull out the factions for draft. Right. Yeah, okay. because hireling step happens first. So in your example, Sam, if the Forest Patrol uh, shows up as one of the hireling choices, then we know for sure that the cats will not appear in the the faction draft proper mm -hmm. now for those of you that don't have the hirelings or obviously want to start doing ad set now you can just don't just skip this step it's just that easy <laughs> yeah and in garrick's tournament there's no hirelings either yeah. so like hireling meta is going to take a few months guys so we're, we're skipping it for now mm -hmm. all right now the meat of it step five flop the setup cards that are the like the faction cards here so all of the factions come in two categories and we've kind of tried to future proof our episode by using these terms red and white factions okay these are like the army factions versus the insurgent factions okay this replaces the reach system correct yes you can still use reach uh if you want to determine games but in advanced setup it is done with this flop of setup cards okay red and white are two very easy ways to uh distinguish between these army types whereas i believe in a previous episode of the podcast we described reach as quote confusing <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i i would even add lightly arbitrary <laughs> um, yeah reach is just for those like little grabby arms now um okay that clarified it thank you <laughs> all right so here's what's gonna happen okay you're gonna shuffle all of the red factions which are the marquis de cat the eerie dynasties the underground duchy the lord of hundreds and the keepers in iron okay? five five factions okay there's five five are red five are white okay you take one of those and you deal one out for sure. We know there's going to be at least one red faction in the game. All right? Because there's got to be. Uh, then you shuffle the remaining red cards with all of the white faction cards. Okay? And then you deal out one per player. So in total, there will be one more faction than the number of players. Okay? Yeah. Excellent. Reverse musical chairs rules here. So if the last faction that you flop is an insurgent faction. Then you turn it sideways to show that it's locked. And it can't be chosen until the red faction is chosen. I've also seen people put that card behind the red faction. So this allows um, it to just be that, like, because of the system, if there were four white factions and one red faction, the four players couldn't just choose all of the insurgent white factions. The reason it's choosing to lock the last one is is if it's just choosing one arbitrarily, but you'll know yes. by then that there's four whites if those are out there, is what you're saying? Right. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And I think, you know, some of these things could be slightly different, but that is the system at large. Okay. Is that, uh, you know, if there's too many insurgent factions, someone's got to choose a red one before that one becomes unlocked. Uh, and then... The Vagabond has a kind of a special relationship to this flop because whenever the Vagabond setup card is dealt out, you also deal one of the Vagabond character cards at random next to it. So if the player chooses the Vagabond in the draft, they use that Vagabond character. There's no more selecting your Vagabond character. So... <laughs> <laughs> Happy Halloween, listeners. <laughs> This is the most like trick or treat rules change in yes. the world. I feel like this is 
such a like it's a nerf in a way because I think it's pretty clear that not all vagabonds are created equal. <laughs> and in fact, two are like outstanding, you know, crush the rest of the player pool type vagabonds. And then the rest fall somewhere, you know, lower than that. Mm-hmm. And most likely you're going to get one of the other ones. Like, I think the joke right now in the community is that it's always Ronin for some reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think this is going to be huge. No more can you be like, oh, I'm going to be the tinker no matter what or like whatever. I And then it's interesting because like I just think it, it, it provides variability. And I always think that it's so fun and root to see what people can do with the hand that they're dealt. Like, can you play all the factions? Can you deal with the curves that are thrown at you? And this just makes the overpowered faction you have to deal with like, I don't really know what Vagrant's good at, but I've got to master it now. He's good at starting fights. <laughs> Instigate. <laughs> so here's a question, though. So then you can't have two Vagabonds, right? Because you couldn't draw the vag- the Vagabond faction card twice because there's only one in that 10 There card are deck. two Vagabond setup cards, so that is possible. Oh, interesting. So then if there's two Vagabond cards, does that make it statistically more likely one Vagabond would be in the game compared to any other white faction? Um, I, I think statistically probably yes, right? Oh, oh! You're saying vagabond will be in more games as a result, right? There's more vagabond cards to pull from the ten, car- the eleven card draft. Yeah, at least it will show up. I think we ran into this with. Um, we haven't mentioned the, this name yet, but uh, the kind of precursor to advanced setup was the plus one pool draft, actually developed by Garrick and a number of collaborators for the previous winter tournaments, uh, and some lessons learned from that. Um, draft system ended up making their way into advanced setup as well i mean i don't want to speak for the designers of this but this was largely based on that wasn't it like it was inspired by because they figured out they like the leader was watching the tournaments like oh this is effective we should include this officially i thought even cole told yeah, us that if right? you if you go behind the giant r-o-o-t letters you'll see <laughs> that the scaffolding that holds them up was all built by garrick and the rest of them <laughs> <laughs> I mean, truthfully, I mean, I especially think like drawing five cards is like huge. Uh, In the plus one draft, you drew more cards depending on where you were in turn order and then drafted down. So the first player just got three random cards, whereas fourth player got six cards to draft from. Um, And I think that that is like a very strong echo of the plus one draft. Now it's everybody gets five and, and draws down, which I think is a clean, nice design, but clearly inspired by the work that Garrick did in the previous winter tournament. Yeah, but I think to answer your previous question, yes, I think the Vagabond will, at least one Vagabond will turn up with regular with regularity, maybe the most uh, frequently of any of the white I mean, that, that's, yeah, I would think, just statistically. Yeah, speaking. I was just looking up if there's, like, a rule of, like, once the Vagabond comes out, then you add the second one Yes, in. yeah, I was wondering that, too. I was wondering, I couldn't find anything about okay. that. But. Well, no, I mean, maybe that's the case. Maybe Vagabond is slightly more likely. I mean, it's not much. It's, what, is it 10%? Less, right. 9%? Okay, great. All right. So we've got our flop of factions out. We've got one red faction for sure, and then that last insurgent faction may be locked. Or if it's a red faction at the end, then great. We've got one more faction than the number of players. Now you draft factions in reverse turn order. So we've already established who's going first, and it's all route to clockwise game. So the last player in turn order drafts their faction first. Yes, they get to look at the full thanksgiving dinner and choose their side immediately crucially Uh, the sweet potatoes are buried under the turkey so someone has to take the turkey for them (laughs) to get the sweet potatoes 
And the crazy thing is, once you choose turkey, you set up turkey immediately. Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. I've kind of I've kind of gotten lost in the cranberry metaphor here. But the point <laughs> is, is that you take your setup card and then you execute that setup immediately. So if Kyle was first and chose the cats, then he would read the cat setup card, and we'll get into the faction setup cards later in this episode, and he would immediately set up. So he has free reign over the board, essentially, is what happens. He has free range to choose any... I said free range, and I stand by it. Uh, that he, yeah. He has free range all over the forest <laughs> to uh, choose whatever wherever he wants, and then other people's setup cards will kind of have to go around that. So crucially, with your last in turn order, you not only get your faction first, but you plop down first, right? And so right. you get your pick of where you want to be. Now, that's generally a, a good thing, but also, you know, going first in turn order and last in setup also allows you to react to what has been placed on the board. Granted, you have less options to place your uh, starting pieces, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, I think a lot of the... It's really interesting, and we don't have a great grasp. So I've played a little bit over 10 games with advanced setup, so I'm not an expert on it yet. But it's interesting to see how the options dwindle and then kind of at the end grow again. And we'll get into it when we talk about the faction setup cards on why that happens. But another key thing to understand about these faction setup cards at this step in the draft is that there are these things called homelands. Okay, this is a new concept. These homeland clearings are essentially clearings that you can start in and other factions that have homelands can't start in. A couple notable exceptions, and we'll get into the craziness that is advanced setup and the kind of opening gambits that people have already started to exploit. I do think this is the most like intricate part to understand, and it's really important to have a pretty clear idea of how each faction sets up via advanced setup, because this really does, it makes certain Gambit's employees possible that you'd be like, if it were just a casual game, you'd be like, hey, <laughs> can I put yeah. your guys on top of my guys like that? And you're just like, well, technically, yeah, I can. So Ooh. have a good game. To be clear, a homeland is a place where, depending on the faction, where you quote unquote start or be, you're placing buildings, it, it, it's noted on each faction that you have to pick a certain homeland or, or a a certain distance away from something, right? But the rule of homelands is is other factions that have homelands in their setup can't place their pieces there. That's the default rule that m may get adjusted based on faction setup. Is that correct? Um, I Almost. don't know if that is like an explicit rule. It's just that all the faction cards that have homelands specifically say you have to choose one that's away from another player's homeland. Oh, then what is what is the phrasing for homeland important for? For just setting up and being a proper distance away from the other player's homelands. Got it. Okay. Some factions have them, some factions don't. Let me see if I got this right. It's the Marquis de Cat, the Eerie Dynasties, the Underground Duchy, the Lizard Cult, the Corvids, the Lord of the Hundreds, and that's it. Keeper. Do the keepers have homelands? Yes. Yes, they do have homelands. Yeah. Yes, they do. So the th the two factions, there are only two, oh, three, I guess, that don't care about homelands are the Riverfolk Company, the Vagabond, and the Woodland Alliance. And the Woodland Alliance, right. Yeah, unfortunately, the Woodland Alliance, oh, we'll get into it, but like, 
they never had a setup to begin with. So their advanced setup is really no different. The biggest thing is those cards. Yeah. Um, I, so then it does seem like while most factions have homelands and on most cards it says this homeland has to be like a certain distance away from a different you know, homeland. Isn't there one where it's really not like that at all? Yeah, Can't we're going to get into it later. Set we're up anywhere? Get, yeah, we're getting into it later. All right. That's when we talk about the specific factions because I'm so excited to talk about the cats, you guys. All right. All right. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll get OK, there. here we go. So you see everybody's whole setup. So, right, like Kyle chose the cats. He puts his pieces out on the board. Um, and then he's already a threat. Yeah. Yeah. We're already planning his demise. Yeah. The, How the, did Kyle get this good of a start? Like, how did we allow this to happen? <laughs> um, so the player that goes third then sees Kyle's total setup and then can choose a faction based on where Kyle set up with what faction. Mm. So maybe what, you, you know, you might be like, oh, I'm a Lizards player or whatever. I was going to go Lizards. But then you see what clearings are going to be left to you given the restrictions on the setup cards. And that might inform your decision to go another way. So... It's very interesting the fact that like setup has been broken. This it's not like we set up and then turn order is something that's totally different. Yeah. Like it's it's going to make the game so much richer and we'll get into what people's experiences have been with it so far. It's it's pretty great. Choosing factions after seeing where everybody exists is a very fascinating change to the game. And mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't necessarily change the game radically, but it definitely changes the outset of the game radically. I love it. Yeah. And I think it kind of rewards a different kind of play style almost. Like, I feel like this type of setup really rewards you being familiar with all the factions mm -hmm. and being able to play them all like pretty competently mm -hmm. because you never know, like when it gets around to you in that draft order, if you're like a Woodland Alliance main and you take a look at that board and you're like, no, it's it's like all the Fox clearings are in one side of the board. And then it's like, you know, just it's, this is not going to work then you have to like be able to take a fresh look at how things have been set up so far and be like, what's my best chance? I will play that faction. So I think it rewards a little bit of that mentality, um, you know, less than just like being super, super good with one and neglecting the rest. Yeah, there's a reason they didn't call it beginner baby setup. All right. <laughs> you think th you think that's the reason? <laughs> I I think th I think they had a couple names ready to go. We're so close to calling it beginner baby setup, but <laughs> it is a little advanced. So I think we're going to change it. <laughs> um, Leader Games, if you ever do create a little baby setup for Root. My little um, Root. Please let me know, because now that I'm teaching board games at an elementary school, I actually think it'd be really valuable to have like a baby setup to like... <laughs> I've seen some people design like home brewed factions so that they can play with their child, you know, and they give their <laughs> child like a pretty like simple faction that's like really overpowered so that they could play. It's not called root. It's just called woot. <laughs> woot. Woot. Want play woot. Bedo boo bang. All right. Uh, all right. So then once everyone has set up and seen everyone set up and now the, the final person who sets up, who's the first player, sets up. Only then do people take those extra two cards in their hand and shuffle them back into the deck. And that is the advanced draft. All right. That's so cool. I love this. I love this setup so much more. It's so much more satisfying and gives you real choice in your outset. So let's, yes. let's talk about the huge takeaways that we have from, from just the draft here. 
First of all, it's so good. So good. So good. Um, I've got a quote here from A.A. Ron. He says, what I've noticed and loved about AdSet is that the game started way earlier. With standard setup, everyone starts far away and has a turn or two to set up until the pressure is on. With AdSet, this changes. From the get-go, the pressure is on and people are already really intertwined. It's called Entangled, A.A. Ron. Uh, it creates some awesome moments of entanglement. Oh, I see. He was just varying his speech. Damn it, Sam. All right. It creates some awesome moments of entanglement before either party is ready for it, leading to some very interesting and ultimately weaker conflict at the beginning. Beautiful to watch, he says. Uh, and, and I think that's right. Like, the entanglement starts... Right away, like when we're setting up factions. Now, we haven't quite explained exactly why yet because we haven't gotten into the details of the faction setup. But part of this is that in original setup, generally, you need to choose a uh, starting clearing that is around the edge of the board, right? Whereas in advanced setup, a lot of these have changed to make your homeland clearing a certain distance away from other players' homeland clearings. So there are a lot of starting positions can actually be in the middle of the board, which would result in this uh, earlier entanglement that he's mentioning. I think I have a metaphor to help kind of describe this, which is that if you take like the, the cats in the eerie, for example, their setup is like hyper polarized mm -hmm. right one starts in one corner of the map and the other is like forced to start in the opposite corner like way the heck over on the other side of the map so the, the polarization is like as extreme as it can get with advanced setup kind of like dial that back slightly so that in certain cases you're still like forced to be as far away as possible but not every case sometimes you can actually be like you know kind of neighbors with somebody and set up in their neck of the woods and this kind of just goes to what aa Aaron was saying with entanglement like if you're if you start closer to somebody then your trajectory is just going to bump into them way sooner because you don't have all that space to like take up you know you're in each other's face already yeah it's and and i will say a lot of the advanced setup cards do start uh say like choose a homeland in an edge clearing okay but so, but we're not bound to the corners, but some factions are bound to the edge. But depending on the map, an edge clearing can be a lot of places. In the mountain map, there are only two clearings that aren't considered edge clearings. What? Yeah. Yeah, take a look. Again, we'll do a maps live stream thing where we've got visuals. And I'm glad we waited because edge clearings are going to be a huge word now that wasn't previously in the game. So um, some weird, weird situations there. This really, truly makes you an edgelord. <laughs> I'm too old to totally understand what that means. <laughs> All right. Um, another huge takeaway for me is that setup order is no longer set in stone, right? It's not cats, then birds or whatever. Like the fact that the birds might be able to take a big juicy clearing, you know, especially now there's going to be landmarks involved in all this shenaniganry that you can eye out certain clearings of the map and you're not tied to where the cats would have set up or just being in a corner. Garrick Samples says, a fun byproduct of the restriction uh, the restrictive setups can be that the second or third player only has one choice of clearing, but then the third or fourth player might have many options for the starting clearing. 
Uh, he said he had that happen the other day in a game where the order of faction setup opened up the options for a faction uh, if it was drafted later. And this is because it'll be like, set up from an enemy homeland two clearings away if possible, right? And so if you're drafting like second or third, then that might only limit you to one or two clearings. But if you're last, then it's like that if possible doesn't exist, right? Like you can't be two away. Everyone's homelands are are too near so then you just like left with more options of being one away right. from each clear yeah right so it's so cool the setup order is going to determine how many options you have and kind of counterintuitively that first player the player who drafts last might have more options it depends on which factions are in the flop and then the order they get drafted but that just kind of shows you how many multitudes of more options there are in advanced setup but you can just feel from the way they were talking about it how this adds to the kind of like productive claustrophobia of having to set up in each other's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I I think that's very cool from a like war game perspective. And also from a storytelling perspective a little bit too. Like we've been playing a lot of Oath recently. Mm-hmm. And one thing in Oath is that you're kind of always reacting to the last, the last like instance of Empire. Mm-hmm. And that like leaves a mark on this game. And in a similar way, it's like whatever faction sets up first, it's like, oh, they've like inhabited the woodland in this way. And then the next faction to come in has to kind of like fit around those contours. Mm-hmm. And the third faction squeezes into the last available spot. And then it's like, oh, there's another. Where are they going to fit? Mm-hmm. Just like they're going right in the middle. <laughs> so it might be like, I, yeah. I mean, again, this is so theoretical. I have nothing to back this up. But it's like it could be that like you want to draft red factions first so that you don't give them the option of being like a powerful army faction that could set up close to you. Mm, I don't know. To just kind of soak up the space yeah. and like kind of create that, you know, same polar magnet to push other factions away. It'd be so crazy to have three people set up and one of the red factions is left over and like the fourth person's like, all right, I'm cats. And then boom, there's cats everywhere all of a sudden. <laughs> like that's such a, yeah. I feel like that's unlikely slash improbable well i don't know you want to be cats going first yeah maybe that's pretty sweet i don't know yeah yeah all right so uh we have more choices for our opening hand right this is a big takeaway and again uh the plus one draft we've experienced this a little now most of the factions are going to be able to get what they need when they start right i mean no more are the days of being a lizard being told what clearing you're going to start in and what cards you start with and just be like, figure it out, you know? <laughs> like, you can actually choose your clearing and choose the cards in your hand. So there's going to be, like, a lot more flexibility there. I mean, some factions, again, the worse the faction was, the better their advanced setup kind of is a lot of the time. So that's going to be great. Uh, as we said, this makes entanglement happen faster. And I've been experiencing this a lot. You best believe everyone has an ambush ready to go. Oh, yeah. Ain't nobody throwing an ambush back in that deck. <laughs> Everyone's hanging on to that thing for dear life. And just, you know, people are just armed to the teeth immediately. Yeah. And it's and when your numbers are low in terms of like warriors, an early ambush can be super <sighs> destabilizing. It's, it's crazy. I forget how destabilizing it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I believe I was playing against uh, a bird player as alliance and i had a lone sympathy out in a clearing and as part of their decree they went and attacked it with just one bird because it was easy to wipe out but they also had a roost there so i played ambush destroyed (laughs) the bird and the roost with just the sympathy i was like i didn't even know i could do that (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Oh, yeah, those toasts are popping out <laughs> of nowhere. I, I will say, even if you did not draft an ambush, I think it's still best practice to just, like, behave as if you did. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe at least, like, kind of be suspicious that other players will have one ready to go. Yeah, you just have to, everyone's got an ambush. That's the way you have to play advanced setup, I think. Uh, also, yeah, you don't throw the ambush back in the deck, even if you're not going to use it. Just like it's one less ambush that is out there for someone else to draw their second one. What What does this practically mean? Like, I, I understand what you're saying that, like, we need to assume the worst. But, like, are you going to take less risks or not make attacks because you're assuming that someone has an ambush? Like, wh what is this? How do you put this into practice? What I would say is people are choosing their homelands unless they're, like, really, really forced to be somewhere. But people are largely are choosing their starting clearings with the knowledge of what's in their hand. So if you see somebody put down an important garden or whatever in a clearing, <laughs> all right, they picked that clearing. And it's like, well, they picked it probably because they've got the cards they need to make that work. And, you know, if they happen to be in the neck of the woods of like a, a red faction, like an army faction, it's like, well, they probably feel safe enough. <laughs> For some reason, to to think that they can make a go of it there, so there's a real chalkboard with a lot of diagrams out there somewhere, being like that leads to one thing in the center that just says he has an ambush. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I I'm gonna be head of the. There's always an ambush conspiracy. <laughs> I do want to say one thing about how the reach system has been replaced, and that with the new system, because the new system could mean that there are four red factions in the game, which was always fine with reach. But actually, uh, the reach low threshold used to be 17. All right? That was, like, what was considered viable for, like, players that were willing to give Root a wonky chance, right? But if the flop comes out where Eerie is the only red faction... Uh, here, actually, I have a quote from Nitro Rev here. He's going to say, we're going to continue to see more games with lower reach now that ad set is here. The lowest possible game I counted uh, is from the initial militant, red faction, is Eerie, and then the lowest reach factions are selected, which are Woodland Alliance, Corvid Conspiracy, and Lizard Cult, for a reach of just 15. This can totally happen in an ad set-based tournament, and players should be prepared for it. So the threshold for a viable game is actually the it's a little lower there's a bigger range of things that can happen okay we never really explained reach which is that okay. you take all those numbers right and you total right. them right they are a sum okay so just explain what that sum means a high number means a lot of potential movement on the board is the summary of that right sure reach being uh, these numbers are attributed to these different factions, and when you add up the numbers of the faction combination, it gives you a sum total. And Leader has said that 21 is the number for a four-player game, and tricky players can go as low as 17. Now that we have advanced draft, that could be as low as 15. I mean, the classic thing here is that Reach is like always this, you know, very lightly arbitrary thing but the general gist is that if you're an army faction and you have a lot of meeples and you can move around the board a bunch then your reach number in giant scare quotes is very large all right but if you're a faction that has like a limited pool of warriors and you kind of can't really get to too many areas of the map 
A good example being the Woodland Alliance. They have like 10 warriors. They pop up in one spot and tend to kind of bunker in place. That type of faction has a very low number. And so in a four-player game, you, w- you want to at least reach a total of the four factions that is like playable. Because if it's all factions that just like sit down and bunker, then you don't have as much interaction and it's just a little bit less... Like, just, like, weird things can happen, and it's less of a fair game, you know? Uh, someone can get away with just, like, a weird non-interactive strategy. It doesn't utilize the mechanics of Root the way it's supposed to, essentially, right? Exactly. A lot of this is dependent upon interaction. Why that concept can be a little bit squishy. But in Adset, the fact is that you could very realistically draft a combination of factions that, according to Leader Games, has a reach of only 15, which is quite low. It's even lower than the, like, lower bound that tournament players have used in the past. What's the huge takeaway? That there's a balance of red and white factions now, as opposed to previously there were generally more red factions. Well, they weren't red then, but higher reach factions. Yeah, the constellation of possible faction combinations is actually a bit broader. Okay. Now that ad set is happening. Got it. Okay. So, and because that, that constellation is larger... Uh, that means that there are some kind of like edge cases that have snuck in, such as this uh, example that, that you read, Sam, with Woodland Alliance, Corvids, Lizards, and the Eerie Dynasties. Got it. Thank you, guys. That makes more sense. Yeah, so be ready, players. There might be some weird combos coming your way. <laughs> You're going to see the Lizards in a lot more games. Hell yes. All right, guys. Should we talk about the rebalance of the game, the faction setup cards themselves? Yeah. So ready. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited about AdSet, you guys. All right, so how we're going to do this, we're going to go through the uh, factions in classic order, okay? Just Woo. the root alphabet. Cats, birds, YAA, vagabond, lizards, otters, moles, crows, rats, and badgers. That's just I disagree board. with this on principle. I'm going to print out 10 cards, and then I'm going to cut them up carefully and then shuffle them. <laughs> also, we're doing YA. We're doing young adult novels. Yeah. <laughs> Why is Jake mad at me? All right. <laughs> I've got... <laughs> no. I've got... How we're going to do this. We're going to read the old setup of the faction, and then we're going to read their new card, and then we're going to scream and react with our differences. Okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, Jake, would you like to read the old setups for all the factions? Uh, yeah, nothing would make me happier, Sam. <laughs> uh, let's starting with the Marquis de Cat. You got it. All right, faction setup. Step one, gather warriors and wood. You'll form supplies of 25 warriors and eight wood tokens. Step two, you place the keep. The keep token goes in a corner clearing of your choice. Very key there. Step three is the garrison, where you move a warrior in each clearing, except the clearing in the diagonally opposite corner from the clearing with the keep token. So as we all remember, cats are everywhere but one space opposite their keep. Step four, place starting buildings. You place one sawmill, one workshop, and one recruiter. You may place them among the clearing with the keep token in and in any adjacent clearings in any combination. So your buildings will always go somewhere around that corner or even in it where your keep is. Lastly, step five, fill the building tracks, where you place all your remaining sawmill workshops and recruiters and your matching building tracks from left to right on your personal board right we all know it it's classic cat setup yeah you all probably said that along with me like word for word i get it yeah it's it's the free bird of root now (laughs) (laughs) do people sing along i don't know all right here we go the whole nine minute song yeah (laughs) 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 Um, now the advanced marquise the cat setup is 
Choose three homeland clearings, each adjacent to one another. Whoa. Put two warriors in each of your homelands and place one warrior in each other clearing. And then you're going to put the keep in one of your homelands that is not adjacent to an enemy homeland, if able. You put one sawmill, workshop, and recruiter on the map, each in a different homeland clearing of yours. Right. You got to split them up. You got to split them up. They can't be in the same clearing. Yep. What a buff for cats to get two warriors in those homeland clearings. That's a nice little starting. Setup. Oh my god! Oh. I am freaking yeah, out Kyle, about as the, the resident setup. cat spurt. What's your what's your initial reactions here? Um, <laughs> I took one look at advanced setup for the cats, and I went me yeah. Make you have to cut all of this. Cut it all. Okay. I literally. I think the the cats did get the buffs that were necessary to keep them from uh, being targeted right away and knocked out of the game. I just, it was like a little too easy to just like cripple the cats, <laughs> cripple them yeah. like immediately yeah. in, in any given scenario. And this just gives, they're just a little tougher. They're a little tougher. You know, that extra cat in each of the homeland clearings uh, it just it makes it a little more durable, especially at the keep. We uh, Nev shares your enthusiasm here, Kyle. Shouts to Nevikinesa. He says, The extra cats on your starting builds does provide the kind of consolidation that you often see people, perhaps erroneously, recommending in the strategy guides, right? When you use a march to like bring cats into a more uh, uh, to a better clearing. He says, You can swing those paired cats around to leverage anywhere that is needed in the early game. Mostly, though, it makes your starting builds so much greater to challenge to kill in the first turn or two, right? Because there's two warriors there, you'll need a 3-0 to battle them. Uh, uh, you'll need to 3-0 them or battle twice, which virtually no one wants to waste their setup doing. Yes, they are so much tougher, yeah. which is really, really nice for the cats. That way they can just breathe that sigh of relief and instead focus on getting those first builds accomplished and kind of getting out on the map a little quicker. I think the biggest thing is the fact that you're not in a corner. I think we we thought it was nice to have the cats in a corner, but if you see the cats in advanced setup, like having all the world connected is very helpful. Yes, you can become octopus cats very easily with advanced <laughs> setup. The thing that I, I want to comment on is that, you know, because homelands, you, you can't overlap them. When you're setting up with the Marquise in advanced setup, whatever you designate as those homelands has a kind of like you know repelling effect on other homelands so you can actually like take over a huge portion of the map with those three adjacent homelands you can just do a stripe for example on the winter map and have like the whole left side of the board as cat territory that's a thing that people need to consider because you always think oh two adjacent like three clearings that are adjacent to each other you're probably going to put the keep in the middle that's not necessarily true either you might not yeah. necessarily you sometimes might wanna... the keep is actually great in a corner yeah mm -hmm. right but now you can extend those homelands like deep into the map another example is on mountain map you can still put the keep in the corner but three adjacent clearings means you could go keep in the corner one connected clearing and then the pass is your third homeland mm, bold bold well, the pass might not have the tower anymore, guys. Landmarks are going to shake that up. Nev has a great point in that uh, it makes the cats a little bop-proof in the beginning, right? It also prevents... It gets them in a better setup place for martial law. Uh, if all they got to do is recruit one more cat into those clearings to prevent shenanigans from the Woodland Alliance. 
and they really don't want to spend their early actions battling away sympathy or even moving around and triggering outrage. They'd they'd rather get set up with uh, two already in there. That's a great point, Jake. Yeah, that makes martial law so much easier. Uh, I did see some people talking on our Discord about there's this one thing you can do on the autumn map where you take, I think it's the top right clearing, uh, the middle one, and then Texas as your three clearings, and it basically forces the next red faction to be in one particular corner. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so there's all kinds of stuff that we'll see develop, strategies and openings that will come as we go. But let's keep rolling, guys. Let's talk about the birds. Jake, will you tell us about the old Eerie Dynasty setup? All right. Back in baby beginner setup, it was step one, (laughs) gather warriors, where you form a supply of 20 warriors. You just group them up in a nice little flock next to your board. Step two, place roost and starting warriors. You place one roost and six warriors in the corner clearing diagonally opposite from the clearing with the keep token. If the Marquise is not playing, place those pieces in a corner clearing of your choice. Now, again, in the base game here, the factions, this one always sets up quote unquote second in order for if Marquise isn't around, so that'll always be their choice. Uh, to step three, choose a leader. Choose one of the four eerie leader cards and place it in your leader card slot. Gather the remaining leaders face up near you. Step four, tuck the viziers. Tuck your two loyal vizier cards showing their suit into the decree columns above your faction board as listed on your leader. And finally, step five, fill up that roost track. Yeah, and here we go with the new setup. It's not too different, but the main thing is right here. The first thing is choose a homeland clearing, the edge clearing whose nearest enemy homeland is furthest. I believe this is especially what? one of the wordings that have been changed. Um, Wait, but oh man, I'm already confused. The whose nearest? nearest... <laughs> this feels like a riddle. Like it's a <laughs> D&D puzzle we have to solve before we can play this game. Whose okay. nearest enemy homeland and... is furthest. What? <laughs> it actually does say in very fine print at the bottom of this card, if you get it wrong, you will die. <laughs> <laughs> Roll a death savings throw. I think it's like furthest from the nearest homeland clearing. Is- yeah, it's like if you can, if the nearest homeland to any one space is like two away, but there's one that's three away. Then you got to go three away. Then you got to go three away. Although is it to every homeland or just... Whose nearest enemy homeland? Whose nearest? (laughs) (laughs) This is the kind of thing where I feel like if you were to draft the Eerie kind of late in the order, like if you were if you were going first in turn order, therefore drafting Eerie last, then your options would be like insanely huge because you know the the map would already be full of homelands, and it's like well, the furthest I can get away from any one homeland is one clearing. So like any clearing that checks that box, I can set up. I see. Okay. I the wording is so confusing. It's just saying that we're as far away from an enemy homeland as possible. Isn't that what it's trying to say? I think yeah. so. Nearest enemy homeland is furthest. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Lord. <laughs> yeah. Just the one whose nearest is furthest. I, I do think that this wording has been will probably be altered in the final thing. It's the same gist. And the one but who's just youngest becomes the oldest (laughs) (laughs) and the last shall be first (laughs) all right uh so let's talk about gameplay instead of uh english uh what does this mean for the birds well the birds 
at times in the past didn't have a choice of what clearing they'd set up in. And that still might be the case if you're drafting second. Right. Yeah, that that definitely can still happen. Luckily, you you have those cards as flexibility, but it's nice to have a little bit more flexibility in your starting suit because we all know the birds are programming their suits and their cards. So um, it's nice to have that flexibility. Yes, 100%. I mean, I think the, the bird setup is, it's not like impacted that much. I agree. I think it's probably the one of the more lateral moves for advanced. Like setup. you might not be starting in a corner, but that also might be a downgrade slightly depending <laughs> yeah. on the map. It's really not. And I, yeah, I just feel like it, it does change the arithmetic on what clearings are easily accessible early in the game slightly depending on the other setups um, because you're not locked to a corner necessarily. It feels like it hasn't really changed their setup so much as just reacted to the new version of setup, essentially, which is just yeah. to keep them far away. Yep. Yeah. All right. All right. And then the next one, Jake, I don't think you need to read. There is no difference between the Woodland Alliance old setup and new setup other than the fact that you'll have more cards in your hand to draft. Um, but the placement is the same. Yeah. Uh, you don't start on the board. Old setup, do nothing. Second setup, do nothing. <laughs> With yeah, more but, cards. Yeah. Well, to be clear, yeah, you just take your warriors and your bases and your sympathy uh, tokens and you place them all on your board. That's essentially set up. And that's the same for Woodland Alliance. There's really anything to say about advanced setup for Woodland Alliance. I guess I think it does kind of... I guess draft is more important change for them now. It's like when they choose to be in the game or not is dependent upon like who's out there already. I think also the fact that everyone's probably going to be more central than the previous standard corner setup is going to have a big impact on their game. Again, not at the very top of the game with setup, but uh, it uh, the games with the Woodland Alliance will look very differently because I think things are going to be a lot more smushed in the middle. Than Does they that? Used to be. I feel like yeah. that benefits the Woodland Alliance because them working on the outskirts and being kind of unimpeded out there generally is beneficial for them. You would think so, but I think the connectivity of the central clearings tends to be Important. ultimately the best or the most efficient way for them to score points, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least get outrage triggered. Yeah, if they get squeezed out, that can be. That can just make their game plan a little too um, slow, mm-hmm. potentially. I would say the the important difference in advanced setup for Woodland Alliance is that you draft your supporters when you set up your faction, but you still have five cards in your starting hand that you get to pick from. But now you get to actually glance at your supporter stack before discarding, so you can yeah, that's you nice. can make a a really a really good plan. For your first turn is with an alliance, an even more informed plan than usual, which I think is is helpful, especially in a, a more crowded space. Yeah, that's great. All right, let's go to another faction that setup doesn't really change too much on paper. In fact, the big setup change here is the fact that you don't get to choose your character card. I'm talking about the Vagabond. Oh, yes. Yeah, pulling that Vagabond slot machine. <laughs> Hoping for something fun, probably getting the Scoundrel. All right. Yeah. That's literally the only change, right? Right, because all the other Vagabond setup are dependent on your Vagabond character card. Right, so step one of the baby beginner version is step one, choose a character. Choose a character card and place it in your character card slot. Now that's dictated by the draft process, and therefore all other things follow suit based on what you've done, which is place your Vagabond pawn in a forest, shuffle your quest deck, draw three quest cards, place them near you, 
populate the ruins, which we all know how to do, where we take those uh, items, uh, march with an R and place them uh, face down on the ruin slots. Then we take our starting items, which are always based on our character card, and then we set up our relationships, which are always animosity. Mm-hmm. I have a pitch for Nebuchadnezzar. If, uh, Nev, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you feel like spending way too much time designing a TTS asset, <laughs> what I want more than anything is like a gumball machine that when ad set vagabond comes up this you can put this big gumball machine and push a button and it dispenses a meeple <laughs> like a random vagabond meeple and that's the one that you uh that you play with for that game all right wow. the request is in i love it yeah that's my pitch <laughs> i love it vagabond gumball machine <laughs> so really this doesn't affect their setup so much affect their draft now it'll affect yeah, it affects their draft, like the Woodland Alliance. They get to see what's on the board before they decide if they want to commit to choosing Ronin. Yeah, and I guess, like, choosing your forest based on where other people are. But really, you're just thinking about the ruin items, I feel like, more than you're yeah. worried about other people. So mm-hmm. I think this is another, not a huge change, except for the hugest change, which is you don't get to choose your character card. Right. Let's do it, baby. We're talking Lizzie's. Jake, hit me with that old Lizzie's setup. This is a big one. So formally, we gather our warriors, a, a supply of 25. Then we place them in a corner clearing diagonally opposite from the Marquis Keep or Eerie Starting Roost. You'll place four warriors and one garden matching that clearing. If both the Marquis and the Eerie are in play, choose one of the two other corners. Then place one warrior in each adjacent clearing. Step three, you choose the outcast by placing the outcast marker on any suit space in the outcast box. And then finally, you fill your garden tracks, place the first 14 remaining. You fill your garden tracks. Yeah. All right. So that is an incredibly restrictive old setup. Let's hear about the new one, and then we'll get into the differences. <laughs> it says, choose a homeland clearing not adjacent to an enemy homeland if able. Second step is put four warriors and one matching garden in your homeland. Samey, same. Put three warriors in clearings adjacent to it as evenly as possible. Mm. A little different. And then here we go, guys. Put two warriors in the Acolytes box. Show what? We start with Acolytes? You bet. Fill your garden tracks. Put the outcast marker on the outcast in the suit you want. All right. So, God, lots of difference here. The lizards are so good now. Lizards are really good now. Okay, what this means is you can straight up do a turn one hated outcast conspiracy situation. (laughs) Okay, you could take away someone's starting building if you wanted to. It's not a good idea. Don't do it. But you could. You could convert people's starting warriors. I mean, sure, you'd make an enemy at the table probably before their first turn yeah which is usually a horrible idea in root but think about it this way if you just immediately spend both of those acolytes to just sanctify a random building on the map for one point for no reason then you're just back to zero acolytes which you would have had in the old setup anyway except this time you get a point and you wreck someone else's day yeah. you'll lose a card when they take out that that garden and give yeah, them a point it, it's not a good definitely. idea but what you can do is you can use that to crusade those starting warriors into a clearing to get that garden situation built up already i've got a a quote here from sir bourbon we've got some royalty uh here not just lord of the board we've also got sir bourbon listening he says in regards to lizards i think the biggest buff is the ability to set up your four lizards on a clearing with a double building slot 
It's not just a wasted amount of lizards anymore. And he's so right. You get to choose your starting clearing, which means you don't get stuck in one of those single <laughs> building slot clearings. Probably. They're not wasted! <laughs> Damn. Damn. Think about this, too. You get to curate your starting hand a little bit as the lizards. Like, what more could you want? You know what I mean? Like, you get to pick your starting clearing that probably has two building slots, or at least is adjacent to a clearing with two building slots that you can, like, easily crusade and take over. You get to pick your starting outcast, and you get to kind of curate your hand a little bit. You might even be scoring points on your first turn as the lizards. Who would have thought? I've done it. That was even possible. It's the first game with advanced setup. I'm like, give me those lizards. <laughs> I know that they're like, they're a turn faster now. I mean, they just have a little more breathing room than they ever had before. The problem with the lizards always was that since their kind of speed at setting up their engine was so slow, that by the time they got rolling, everyone else was already in like a pretty secure spot. Now, though, they actually get to participate in that phase of the game where everyone's kind of jockeying and kind of doing those like little chippy damage things early in the game to kind of undermine somebody's, you know, trying to set up a really good position. You can kind of like chip away at it a little. They get to participate in that phase. If ad set is new for you and you like the lizards, you're going to love the lizards now because formally, I mean, when I first played against the lizards, I remember you two loving them as underdogs for quite some time. I remember asking both of you on different occasions, uh, like around round three or so, is like, when are you going to play the game? Because you guys can (laughs) easily get stuck not doing anything because Outcast has not been in your favor. And this having two acolytes, that's wonderful. Not a head start, but it really is like a a start. It just greases the wheels of your engine. Because, I mean, you can still end up in like a outcast dry spell for sure. That's just mm-hmm. how the lizards go. Um, but at least now you have a fighting chance to like kind of like get back in the game yeah. or like get into it yeah. from the get go. Fight for a clearing that you want. Yeah. Shocker. Uh, <laughs> Garrick Samples has a quote here. He says, Lizards used to be playing from a one to two turn deficit, having to relocate their seat of power and having a remaining garden as a liability where they started. Way bigger than the starting acolytes. Way bigger. I agree. I, it is true. The starting clearing and just like, what do you have in your hand? You know what I mean? Like matching your starting clearing to the suits you have in your hand. It's it's just a new world for lizards, and it's they're going to flourish. Mark my words, there's going to be a lot of lizard lizard wins in the tournament. I think there's going to be a lot of lizard shenanigans, right? Like I still mm-hmm. feel they're underpicked in a lot of situations, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll definitely um, be talking faction interactions when we begin to cover uh, the Marauder factions. Uh, but specifically, the way that they interact with Lord of the Hundreds. And the Keepers in Iron, I think, does make them a valuable kind of counterpick in some tournament settings. So uh, keep an eye out for some surging lizards. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's go to otters. This one's going to be messy, Jake. Hit me with the old otters setup. Okie dokie. Well, first you gather your warriors. So there's 15 of them for those poor little otters. You place four of them in any clearing touching a river. Then you place nine trade posts on your trade post tracks on your board. You put three warriors in your payments box and you put one service marker on any space of each of your service tracks, which is it's setting your prices. All right. I'm going to say a lot of stuff that sounds similar and we're going to talk about the implications. Place four warriors among any clearings along the river. Place three warriors in your payments box. Fill your trade post tracks with matching trade posts. Put three service markers on your service tracks, setting prices for each service. 
Well, that's not different. So you just start with five cards in your hand, right? But isn't the otter's hand public? So doesn't that mean everyone can see your five cards during setup? I believe that's the case, yeah. Ooh, interesting. So if you choose otters, then you just immediately make your hand public to everyone when you pick that faction. You can set your prices based on what people want to buy and discard the rest. <laughs> and you'll probably have an ambush, which is a good excuse to set them to three. So as soon as, okay, so you're holding your five cards in your hand as a non-faction. Then when you say, I am choosing otters, you must then put down your five cards and show them, right? I think so. I think I this think so could too. be... A, you know, a tricky thing that maybe something in the law might contradict or whatever, but I believe that's the read. I think you're right, and that makes sense because public hand, which is the rule that gives them this, I mean, that's part of their rules and abilities, and their rules and abilities kind of, like, define what they are able to do even prior to their setup. So right. I, think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what's the big difference, Teach? Well, the big difference is I didn't say that word we've been using this whole time. Homeland. <laughs> i no homeland homeland right. the otters don't have a homeland nor do they have a restriction about setting up in other people's homelands mm. so if you're choosing a homeland and the otters are in the draft the river might be a risky place to put a homeland well, this is also interesting because you can place four warriors in any clearings, including all in one. Yeah, I mean, that's been the, the wisdom at the moment is right. you always want an otter ball eventually. So you might right. as well just start having four because if you rule clearings, then you can use your own warriors in your you know payments box in your funds to put down trade posts. So it's good to rule clearings. So you might as well have all the warriors in one clearing. I don't know if that'll change. Oh, I don't imagine it so changing, but... Um, it's crazy that you can set up in other people's homelands. Okay, a counterpoint to your counterpoint. Yes. Um, there is one exception to this that I can think of uh, in terms of homelands, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with homelands, and more is just a property of uh, one particular piece, uh, and that's the keep. Oh. So if the keep is in a river clearing, and the cats have set up before you've drafted the river folk company, the keep is live. You know, right. So you can't place any enemy pieces in that clearing, meaning you can't put any otters in the clearing with the keep, even if the keep is on the river. Oh, my gosh, Kyle, that's so interesting. You're right. And like the factions like the lizards and the moles we'll get into in a sec that like have like a certain amount of warriors you place in adjacent clearings as evenly as possible. You can use the keep as one of those to like keep them from being distributed evenly and maybe bulk up a little bit more in a couple other clearings. Right. Yeah. The keep is very like waterproof to <laughs> meeples in during setup. <laughs> um Garrick Sample says important note for the otters, they do not have a homeland, which means beware of setting up on the river otter infestation likely. And I think the meta, we'll see in the tournament how this goes, because somebody's definitely going to do it, where they're just going to be like, and I set up here, and I'm going to wreck you, you know? Oh, man. It's going to get ugly. So that's the otters. The otters' setup has not changed, and kind of in a scary way. Jake, let's hear the old moles' setup. Absolutely, Sam. First, you're going to gather your warriors and your tunnels, because you got 20 warriors and three tunnels. You're going to place the burrow board near the map. You're going to place, and this is key, two warriors and one tunnel in a corner clearing that does not have the Marquis Keep, the Eerie Starting Roost, or the Lizard Colt's Starting Garden, and diagonally opposite from one of those starting clearings, if possible. Then, place two warriors in each clearing adjacent to that corner clearing, 
except the borough. Yeah. Rich, because the borough is adjacent, for the clarification of that, is that the borough is technically adjacent to a clearing with a tunnel. So you don't do it in that, even though it says it in adjacent clearings. Yeah. Then you fill your building tracks, you collect your ministers, and you fill your crown spaces. Yeah. So the changes of the underground duchies setup is the first thing you do is you choose a homeland clearing that is not adjacent to an enemy homeland if able then you put two warriors and one tunnel in your homeland sounds familiar but this time you put five warriors among clearings adjacent to it as evenly as possible then you put then you put the burrow near you fill your building tracks nine suede ministers crowns and all that so i guess it's a similar thing where you don't get them in the burrow at the top because we haven't put the burrow on the board by the time you've put the warriors down, I think is the way they got around that wording. Um, but there, you most likely will start with less warriors than you started with in traditional standard setup. True. However, because the homeland choice for the underground duchy is not restricted to an edge clearing, you could actually choose a more central clearing and just have like a, uh, you know, a more diluted distribution of moles at the very start of the game, which, as we all know, is wonderful for swaying ministers. Yeah. Having just like one little mole warrior in a bunch of different clearings can open up the options on your turn for what cards you want to play. Yeah. Uh, and again, being able to draft your hand slightly even improves that further. So I, I would say, like, depending on what strategy you want to go for with the underground duchy, this actually gives you a lot of a lot of opportunity to. Um, you know, pick your own adventure. Yeah, I think the community kind of thinks this is a slight nerf, but I'm actually interested to see what that does for swaying to like dilute the warriors. Not that they had a problem swaying before, but um, obviously I mean, starting it, with less warriors is is worse. It feels like a nerf, like less yeah. less warriors in the outset when, as we recall, everyone now has an ambush. Like that right. sucks. And you got to protect your stuff. And uh, as someone who's uh, paid the price of failure on turn two, it definitely hurts as a, as like yeah. not being prepared. For sure, it definitely is a little a little wimpy for the moles to just have two warriors in their starting clear in their homeland plus a tunnel. Like that's just not a lot of right. presence guarding cardboard. Like it, it might feel like a lot for the cats, but it's just not as much for the moles, especially if you want to go for a heavy building strat. It's like you're kind of forced to prioritize either consolidation or recruiting almost no matter what if you want to get a building down and have it be protected. Um, so, yeah, I, I would I think I would tend to slightly agree with the community that this is maybe a light nerf. Mm -hmm. But then again, just, you know, the flexibility with swaying, given the five warriors distributed in clearings all around your homeland may kind of counterbalance that slightly we'll see i i have a bias against like nerfs because i always think it made things weaker but i think i always remember from a design perspective of it it better balanced things so i, I yeah. think i think this actually is the right choice i think this is a better setup for them in terms of the economy of root even though yeah. as a moles player it hurts a little bit that's kind of how it yeah. has to go or at least it makes them work to turtle yeah, they have to yeah, work a exactly. little harder to like full turtle. I think that's more important because as someone who's played against the moles, when they turtle so efficiently, it's frustrating as hell. So like yeah. making that at least a little bit more of a feat uh, feels like a good balance choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, crows, hit me with damn crows! All right, the Corvid conspiracy sets up first by gathering their supplies of fifteen warriors and eight plot tokens. Uh, they put those plot tokens face down, and then. They place one warrior in any clearing 
of each suit for a total of three. Right. Notably, that will include the... Uh, what's that landmark? The Lost City? The Lost, Lost City, City would uh, bump this up because the Lost City is a landmark that creates a wild um, clearing, which is all suits at once. You could choose that as one of your things, but you wouldn't it, get an additional warrior in standard setup with that landmark. All right, so let's talk about advanced setup, Corvid Conspiracy. This, uh -huh. they choose a homeland clearing. They put one warrior and one plot of their choice face down there. And then they put one in a clearing of each suit. So counting the previous step, that's a total of four warriors. So they got an extra warrior and they have a plot face down turn one. I don't want to play Corvids any other way. I know. This, like, having a starting plot is so helpful for them. Like, that's crucial. It also this is a very lizards like improvement. Yes. Just getting that engine rolling immediately. Now they can craft on the first turn. For, I mean, previously they were one of the only factions that could not do any crafting on their first turn. Uh, now they can, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this just kind of gets the ball rolling right away. I mean, that's probably going to be an extortion, right? Well, well <laughs> PJ Dark R says. <laughs> Crows, if chosen after the river folk, can now plot on the otter ball and flip a bomb turn one before oh. that they can respond. He said, that... I had this happen in an IRL game. I was river folk. <sighs> it dramatically changed the state of the market. Suddenly people felt bad for me and bought stuff willy nilly. I shaded my points a bit and ultimately made a great comeback and almost won. <laughs> They can only do it because the river folk have no homeland. Man, so we were talking about how the crazy. river folk can like set up on somebody else's business, but the crows have this nasty thing of like they could bomb turn one. Now, because it's a homeland, you can't do that to another player's homeland, but the river folk have no homeland, so you can bomb those otters turn one. All right. You know that meme where it's like the, the astronaut with a gun yeah. and that's like pointed at the other astronaut? That's kind of what I feel like the situation is here, because it's like you set up on the river. It's like the otters are coming for you. And then it's like, but also the corvids are coming for the otters. Yeah. So like. <laughs> it was a bomb all along. <laughs> That's crazy. Now, notably, if the river folk don't get a turn, they're probably not going to have any cardboard there. So the bomb is used to gain a point, then destroy some warriors. And exactly. gain a bunch of sympathy for that river folk player, I suppose. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, as you were saying, extortion makes the best choice up top, so you can get that card generation rolling for sure. But oof, this is a the, crazy combo. But the problem is everyone knows you're going to do that. So it's a really easy turn one guess before yeah. you even have a turn. Yeah, but you're lying. Yeah. In fact, am I lying right now? It's a snare. This is me setting up for our future game where I play this <laughs> Yeah, we're playing right after that. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is... It immediately puts everyone in that headspace of like, but if that is the most efficient play, and I know that that's the most efficient play, <laughs> then they know that I know that that's the most efficient... <laughs> oh, no. I feel like I'm immediately into that, like... Princess Bride. <laughs> Princess Bride spiral, yeah. <laughs> um... But, I mean, then again, if you're setting up last and Corvids are just kind of on the table and you're like, that seems fun, I'll go for the Corvids. I mean, you get to flip that plot before anyone can do anything. So you could just, like, steal a card from the duchy or, you know, whatever the case may be. Right. Um, 
there would be no danger of guessing the plot if you're going first in turn order. So that's maybe something to keep in mind right. is you would get a free um, plot of your choice. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get through the two new factions. Uh, let's actually cover their uh, advanced setup card first because uh, the Badgers, uh, I guess it's the same. I don't know if I've actually seen the standard setup of the Badgers. Wait, wait this is coming out the same time as these factions, aren't they? Or is their board going to say the same thing as the setup cards? It basically does. The Rats... We'll get into the differences. The Lord of Hundred says, Choose one homeland clearing, the edge clearing, whose nearest enemy homeland is furthest. Again, <laughs> some of these wordings might be different. Furthest from a homeland clearing? Is that what we're deciphering I, that that's as? Our read, that's our read from before. It's the same <laughs> language, yeah. I'm going to have to edit this so much if we're wrong. <laughs> yeah, all right. Put your warlord, four warriors, and one stronghold in your homeland. Set your mood as stubborn and place the four ruin items under the uh, ruins as if you're setting up for the Vagabond. Uh, yeah, so the ruins get seated with items. Uh, stubborn, for uh, those listeners who don't have a, a copy of all the moods of Lord of Hundreds uh, just set up in front of you. First of all, like... <laughs> what do you do? Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, but second, so stubborn is the mood where in battle with your warlord, you take one less hit. Okay, I mean, it, that's kind of just to keep keep yourself alive until it gets to your turn, I think is the idea. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a defensive posture on setup, which I think is, I mean, I guess I think that makes sense, right? Like, that, that's one of the only useful ones that you could be, I guess, yeah, and it's, during it, your well, first turn. It's interesting. Well, it's not during your first turn. It's before your first turn. And your first turn, you can't be stubborn. Right, because you're forced to change mood during birdsong. Right. Right, that makes sense. So, yeah, so, right, that, so that, that, I don't know if it, that's... It's good defensively so that you don't get your setup torn apart, but it also doesn't make you maybe as uh, resilient when you try your opening gambit, maybe. Well, or maybe it just pushes you onto the front foot like right away. Like you don't have an option to be a turtle right? Yeah. as Lord of the Hundreds <laughs> on your first turn. So you might as well just get out there and show them what you got, kid. Yeah. <laughs> and so the old setup, uh, or the standard setup uh, for the rats just has them set up in a corner as far possible from the chosen corners, and you set up before the keepers. This is what's on the back of the board in TTS. That's where I was able to find this information. Um, so we we don't have a lot to talk about, like the differences there. Um, but like kind of similar to the birds, which are these like move and attack factions. You you start furthest away from people's homelands as possible. Yeah, specifically on an edge. Which is a little bit interesting, uh, because right. one of the things the Lord of the Hundreds is seeking in the early game are those items in the ruins, trying to get those oh, mobs right. going to get those items. So in your setup for Lord of the Hundreds, it might actually benefit you to not be stuck in a corner, but instead be like on an edge clearing that's a little closer to the center of the map where all those ruins are. Yeah, I wonder how many in the maps, we'll do this on the maps episode, how many ruin clearings are edge clearings. Like it's a good question. That might affect like what maps Lord of the Hundreds is best on or whatever. Yeah, or uh, your incentive for setting up in different areas. Right. All right. Okay. Let's talk about badgers and badgers. I couldn't find any differences here between the uh, standard setup and the advanced setup. So they collect all twelve relic tokens and shuffle them face down. Place one at random in each forest. They then 
Place four warriors in an edge clearing with at least two clearings between it and an enemy homeland if able. Then they put four warriors into an adjacent edge clearing. I'm a little unsure if that second clearing is a homeland or not. I think it is because of this it next It is step. a homeland. Uh, it is an additional homeland, yeah, yes. It says, put the remaining relics, if any, amongst any forest not adjacent to your homelands, that's the key, as evenly as possible. And then you tuck your faithful retainer cards into your retinue. Right. So the the uh, relics that you're kind of going after as the keepers, they, they get dispersed kind of as far away as possible from your starting uh, edge clearing. Do they have to an edge clearing? Yeah, they're, you're starting edge clearing. Yeah. But that second one doesn't have to be an edge of note. So when you choose that first homeland, it does have to be in an edge, and then you could go inward if you wanted to. Ah, okay, I see, I see. This does feel like a little bit of a um, an in-between point between uh, whose nearest enemy homeland is furthest yeah. and just, like, not straight up adjacent to an enemy homeland. This is, right. like, at least two. Right. Like, go for at least two, but it's no problem if you can't. Yeah, yeah. This feels a lot more definite. Yeah, for sure. I'm so interested to see how the rats and badgers are going to influence the meta in the tournament coming up. And these guys were definitely made with advanced setup in mind. So there's obviously less of a change. We don't know really the big changes there, but it will certainly shake up uh, the meta. I'm very excited to see what badger strategies emerge. I want to mention one kind of funny thing about the advanced setup for the badgers so the Badgers have this ability, uh, well, it's more of a restriction on their player board uh, called Live Off the Land, which says that any clearing at the end of their turn that they have four or more warriors in, they lose one warrior from that clearing. And notably, during setup, <laughs> both of their clearings start with four warriors. So they're they're living off the land, like, right away. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, that just gives an incentive to, like, move out and, like, start getting entangled, like, right away. So, in that sense, I think this is a really successful... That's such a grim uh, rule. Setup. Like, they they can't afford to eat, so they have to eat one of their own? Is that what I'm reading that as? You know, it's funny. I think that is kind of starting to become fan canon a little <laughs> bit, that the the badgers are cannibals. Um, my sense of it is that, like, they're these relic hunters, but when camping gets, you know, too rough and tumble for these, like, museum workers... They just decide to, like, go marry a farmer's daughter somewhere and, like, live on, like, turnips and wheat or whatever. Oh, I see. Somebody <laughs> quits. Yeah, they, uh. they just give up and go off and do their own thing. They're like, hey, it was cool being a part of this, like, forest preservation society or whatever, but I just can't be around this many badgers. The guys are <laughs> obnoxious. So All you guys eat is berries. <laughs> <laughs> we are malnourished. We cannot fit inside one tent. I don't care what Randolph anyway, says. Anyway, I'm this... going to marry this handsome farmhand. <laughs> <laughs> this armor, armor is heavy. And we barely use it. I'm going to turn into a building. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. That's really what it incentivizes you to do. It's like, I'm just going to turn this guy into a building. Yeah. Yeah, so you think they, what, they like... Double in camp, like... turn one. They're transformers. Tan the hide of one of their friends and turn it into a tent. <laughs> I don't understand thematically what's going on within camp and decamp. 
how does a building become a warrior and how does a warrior become a building, guys? They're making each other into tents. Here's my pitch <laughs> is that they're all carrying around supplies. Like they, they have a big caravan when they move, right? Uh-huh. And it's all their stuff. So the warrior isn't in fighting shape because they're administering to holding up the encampment. They're running the encampment. So it's like uh-huh. it's the warriors taking up the encampment spot. Otherwise, it, or if you have three warriors and no encampment, you have no real quote unquote defenses slash uh, place to build your things or do your activities. Because everybody's on guard. Hmm. I think that's pretty reasonable. Either that or the buildings are made of <laughs> fur. <laughs> Great introduction to the advanced setup, gentlemen. Thank you for helping clarify all of that. Yeah. And I want to tell everybody now that you can play with advanced setup right now. And we say that about this expansion a lot. But this is literally the thing you should print off and do right now. This will improve your game of root today. Even if you don't have the new factions, if you don't have the hirelings or whatever, it will start spicing up your game of root to just do the advanced setup. Even if you don't do the draft, just choosing your faction and setting up according to the new setup cards will really rock your world. It's great. This is also probably the future of root. Um, So like we'll probably refer to this time in the future some point we'll be like remember when we had two ways of setting up we were just learning the real way like that's that's gonna happen so if you want to keep playing root you're gonna probably start playing it like this uh some notable exceptions are are digital but i'm sure it'll get implemented in some point in the future my my feeling about advanced setup is that it, it very much feels like the training wheels have fully come off it's much more of like an organic starting structure now in every game of Root. And so just the the level of like complexity and messiness has been dialed up. Uh, and I, I think that is really a breath of fresh air in Root. Um, anyone who's played digital a bunch will tell you that there are certain themes that emerge uh, when, when setup is pretty locked. And I think this does a good job to kind of just mess it up a little bit and just make things a little unpredictable and, and, uh, you know, make certain surprising possibilities a reality. But you also set up that unpredictability a little bit by your selection and your draft and your reaction to other players' choices. So, yeah, it is unpredictable, but it's like an unpredictable that's kind of dictated by the four players at the table or X players at the table, I should say. Yeah. I mean, and for us here at the Root Podcast, Woodland War Machine, it's like all the knowledge we had we we got to throw, I would say, like 35% of it in the garbage now that we have advanced setup. <laughs> right? Like, the notions of what the early game looked like, like, that's a big statement to say the early game. Like, the early game could be like 10,000 things. The war could be on turn one. Yeah, get, get ready to hear a lot more about themes and a little bit less about, like, raw openings. Because I think opening theory is about to be uh, completely rewritten. Um, Or it's just going to be too hard to write down because there's too many variables now in some ways, right? I know. I know. It's going to be so challenging. But I don't know. I I feel like this is a challenge that's so worth trying to, like, actively wrestle with a little bit. And from what I've seen, uh, any players who, like, put in some time to, like, really think about this stuff always end up benefiting in like tournaments and in kind of other more competitive scenarios. Um, just, just thinking ahead a little bit about like what, what impact somebody else's choices have at the table. Um, I'm, I'm 
this is my new like permanent setup system for root for sure and i uh i for one welcome our new setup overlords (laughs) (laughs) all right well we want to thank you all listeners for listening as well as uh contributing to this episode i didn't write down people's names this episode and i'm not going to waste everyone's time to do it now uh i want to thank nitro rev garrick samples suburban uh, and the countless others that helped make this uh, one possible. Go ahead and sign up for the winter tournament if it's still available. And for all of us here at the Woodland War Machine Podcast, we'd love for you to join us on our Discord. That is the Good Time Society Discord, where there's all kinds of fun happenings going on. Jake has a Star Trek podcast. There's Two Player Tuesday. I've been watching a, a ton of Two Player Tuesday. <laughs> Um, and all kinds of great gaming stuff. Becca Scott does uh, incredible stuff. The Calyx is great. Uh, we also Calyx. have a wood... The Calyx? The Calyx is great. But that's not what the shelf is called. <laughs> Isn't it? That's what it was? I thought that's what it was. <laughs> I've never put that together. That's so funny. That is not what the shelf is called. The show is not named after the Ikea shelf. This is true. It is, uh, it's a flower, I believe. Oh, well, I, my apologies to everyone uh, that's fans of the Calyx. I assumed <laughs> that you guys, I thought it was just like a fun board game because like the Calyx shelf is so synonymous with board games. Oh, I, I thought it was that. a great, great name for a show. No, yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, you learn something new every day on the <laughs> Good Time Society Discord. And we've got a Woodland War Machine channel with that's now got all these threads. All right. There is a digital looking for game i always think it lfg is let's fucking go let's fucking go because <laughs> in soccer that's what it means um but looking for game of digital and we now have a tts one as well for those ready to practice for the winter tournament we're organizing those games uh as we speak so come on in and join us yeah thanks so much for uh being here and listening to episodes if you also want to support the show and support good time society you can join our patreon there's a link to all of these wonderful things in the description of this podcast but gentlemen uh sam you and i gotta go play a game of root and kyle you gotta go be in a chess tournament i know you guys i'm real excited i'm so (laughs) excited for you we should catch up on the next episode about how that chess tournament went because i it's a rated chess tournament like it's real i'm I'm gonna get rated i don't know if it happens right away but i'm I'm gonna at least do my best to get rated. now kyle are you guys using chronological setup or advanced setup (laughs) for this chess tournament yeah um sadly we are going to be using traditional setup Mm -hmm. um but i'm gonna do everything in my power to like mess it up we'll see yeah yeah, keep those ambush cards for when you need them, Kyle. Who drew We're a river on this chessboard? <laughs> My game of chess involves many dice. <laughs> Just in the middle of the chess hall, we hear in the corner someone going, Root!